Hello and welcome to Persistent and Nasty Podcast. This is our Edinburgh Festival Fringe 2019 series. Throughout this series, we will be talking to women of the fringe, from producers to directors, writers and performers. We hope you enjoy all of the podcasts and get along to see as much of it as you can. This podcast was recorded at Assembly Club Bar with thanks to Sharon Burgess, Danny Ray, Connell, Chris and all of the staff at the Club Bar. As we are recording out and about, you may hear some background noise. Hopefully it won't affect too much, but it might just give you the vibe and atmosphere of the festival. So sit back, relax and enjoy some persistent and nasty women. How are you? I'm doing alright, I'm doing alright. Okay. It's like last week of Fringe, Wednesday morning. I know, Wednesday morning, we're on hump day. <laughs> it's like hump day of a normal week, like major hump day of festival, I, know, I think. I know. That's Everybody's... why it's got the most letters Wednesday, because it's the hardest to get through. Uh, uh, that's it. Do you know I love that? Never even thought about that. Yeah, there that. we go. Yeah. True. Wisdom already. So for our podcast (laughs) listeners, if you just want to kind of give yourself a little introduction, say who you are, all of that. Sure. Uh, My name's Paula McFetridge. I am the artistic director of a theatre company in Belfast called Kabosh. Uh, We're a company that um, works out of a small office. There's only two of us run the company. Everyone else is freelance. And uh, the company is committed to trying to give voice to the site spaces and places of the north of Ireland. Uh, in order to humanise stories of conflict, to help us as a society deal with the legacy of the past. Um, within that as well, we do a lot of tourism work as well. So we do we look at kind of animating heritage sites, we look at commemoration work, we look at, um, again, finding out what is unique, um, because inevitably post-conflict our tourism numbers have risen a lot, and I think what tourists want to see is stories told by the people in the places that they go to. Uh, but inevitably, unfortunately, the way the world works, um, there's conflicts globally at the minute and there's a deprivation of human rights and uh, some terrible right-wing politics rising across the world. And so the narratives of the north of Ireland seem to have a certain resonance in an awful lot of other places. And different countries who may be at a different time and geographical relationship to conflict um, a lot of them don't necessarily use the arts to assist and somehow given voice to those they perceive to be other. Um, and we've discovered over the last, I suppose, the last eight years that a lot of the work can speak to other countries because uh, it is about the personal story, the human story. And um, unfortunately, the language of conflict is international. We're all dealing with the same mm. issues. We're dealing with bitterness, cultural identity, keeping the memory of a loved one alive, policing, um, hurt, trauma. Um, gender violence and all of those issues can be dealt with from a parochial aspect and uh, so yeah so that's kind of what we do uh, it sounds like it's all very depressing but it's not because a lot of the work's about human survival mm-hmm. it's about the joy of the human spirit and about what's within us to overcome stuff you know um, but yeah so it's myself and Zoe Fox runs the company uh, we do on average about um I suppose all in about eight shows a year they kind of range in scale from, from kind of like a 20 minute pop up in a heritage site to a full scale drama and we're here at Edinburgh Fringe with a piece that called Green and Blue and uh, Green and Blue is based on stories that were gathered from um, 
the police in the north and the south of Ireland. And the police in the north are called the Royal Ulster Constabulary, otherwise known as the RUC, and they wore a green uniform. And those in the south of Ireland are called Ungarda Siakana, which in Irish means the Guardians of the Peace. And they wore a blue uniform. And um, we're very interested in trying to find the voices of conflict that haven't been heard before, because I think in order for us to somehow deal with the past, we need to have an understanding of who people are. Mm -hmm. And so um, we worked with an organisation called Diversity Challenges, who gathered stories from ex-officers who served on the border. And that's a very hard narrative to find. Men aren't great about talking about their kind of journeys, their personal <laughs> lives. And so these stories were gathered, they went into an archive, and then in their wisdom they decided they needed an artist to respond to it, which is something that we find a lot, because um, it's really important when you're gathering the stories of somebody that, that those who own the stories, the story keepers, are challenged as much as those that have never heard them before. Mm. And that's how an artist can do that. They can step in and put it through a different lens, and they can challenge both those that have never heard it and those that think they own it and know it. Anyway, so I, um, I worked for a long time on and off with um, a uh, Republican ex-prisoner, Lawrence McKeown, and uh, Lawrence is great at writing soul, as I call it. Um, and uh, Lawrence and I worked with this archive and a committee of ex-officers over a 15-month period, and we created Green and Blue based on the colour of the two uniforms. And um, when we premiered it in October 2016 in an old army barracks in Belfast, um, Brexit wasn't even on the table. Mm. And now what we're finding everywhere we do it is people want to talk to us about Brexit and borders and mm -hmm. the human cost of borders. And obviously that means the play has a different resonance. So as much as people are talking about the type of policing we would all like as a society, the, the, the uh, number of officer widows that come and talk to us I mean women of all different denominations that talk to us about loss and pain but then also people talking to us about borders now and uh, so yeah so we're here at Edinburgh we're doing the three we're doing the 21 performances uh, we're nearly there we've <laughs> nearly survived um, and uh, and it's interesting here because we're not doing post-show discussions um, oh, okay whereas normally I would do post-show discussions with virtually all of our work because when you're dealing with such contested narratives and, and kind of difficult journeys I think it's very important if you create a provocation that people then have an opportunity to at least kind yeah. of voice their own narratives uh, but we're not doing that here but um because the two actors have very fetching late 1970s, early 1980s moustaches, uh, they're very easily spotted in the bar. So uh, people are still coming up to talk to us about kind of uh, their relationship with the north of Ireland, their relationship with conflict, and primarily their relationship with police. The number of people that feel the need to go, oh, my granda was in the blah, blah, or my grandmother was in it, you know? So, yeah, so that's why we're here. There you go. Great. <laughs> no, yeah, I, know. I know I'm absolutely blown away. I'm blown away. Yeah, so you started Kabosh eight years ago? No, actually, Kabosh was started before me. Okay. Um, before I went into Kabosh, I'm in Kabosh now 13 years. Okay. The company's 25 years old this year. Prior to me going into Kabosh, I worked as a freelance actress for a long, 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 long time. But I also I was a founder of a circus in Belfast, so I actually got my equity card for doing the Can Can on stilts. <laughs> Yes. Just thought I'd throw that into the ring just while we're here. Do you know what I mean? Bet you didn't see that coming. No, I absolutely love it. So if anybody wants to know how to go to a toilet in a nightclub at three o'clock in the morning on a pair of stilts, I'm your girl. It's actually not that easy. It's actually much harder than yeah. actually doing the can-can. I've done the stilts like twice. I guess. <laughs> 
brilliant and terrifying at the same time. So the fact that you can canned and went to the toilet in it, Woo! super impressive. Yeah, because I hadn't brought enough tape. It was my own fault. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I was a founder member of the circus. I was very heavily involved in carnival arts. I've been involved in community arts for a long time. Um, in Belfast, we had, or well, in the north of Ireland, we had the largest community arts sector in Europe because of the length of the conflict. Mm-hmm. So inevitably, you're dealing with communities that are uh, isolated, oppressed, impoverished. And in those situations, as we all know, community arts tend to come to the fore. So we have a very strong community arts sector. So I was kind of involved in an amazing initiative called the Beat Initiative Carnival, which had a massive carnival that happened every June. I was production manager on that. I, um, as I say, founded the circus. And then I kind of was heavily involved in various things, from puppet work to performance to independent theatre to mainstream theatre. I toured a lot as an actress. And then um, in, gosh, was it 2003? No, it was earlier than that. Oh, 2000. Uh, I, uh, the Lyric Theatre, which is the main producing theatre in the north of Ireland, um, was um, it was had been going through a lot of changes regards artistic directors, and I was very heavily involved in the union and the arts council and stuff, and I'd been involved with equity for a long time, and we'd been having conversations about that you cannot have an independent theatre sector if you don't have a powerful mm-hmm. what's considered mainstream theatre, because then what does the independent sector react to? And um, and so and the lyric at the time was having problems, as happens with buildings, you know. Anyway, there was a committee office went to see them and said, look, listen. Uh, why don't you let us help you programme it? And uh, the lyric said, mm, don't, don't like the idea of a committee. Tell you what, Paula, would you do it? And I was like, oh, for flip's sake. <laughs> so the minute you stick your head above the parapet, if somebody then gives you the opportunity, you can't go, do you know what? Punches pilot? No, 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 no. <laughs> so, I, so I then went, oh, for flip's sake, now I'm going to have to do this. Um, and uh, so I went into the lyric in 2000. Okay. And um, at the time, there was also the big discussion about the changes of the building and because uh, the building needed rebuilt and so yeah I went in for six months <laughs> stayed for a year went for the job because everybody said you've been doing it you might as well go for it and I'm like oh for flip's sake so then that's what happened I ended up in the Lyric as artistic director for six years and during that time we chose the architects for the new building O'Donnell and Toomey and uh, and yeah I mean it was difficult because I went in as an actor mm-hmm. artistic director um, because I you know, I'd seen it done elsewhere and I really wanted it to happen. But what I hadn't really considered was it was men who did it elsewhere. Um, and <laughs> as we all know, parts for women are, you know, few on the ground. Um, I mean, I love putting creative teams together. I have always done. I love being in a rehearsal room. I just love, I just love creativity, you know. And I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Like, I don't have a writing bone in my body. Yet every single project I do is new writing. Because... I have a good editing ear, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's about sh- putting the right writer on the right project with the right team, you know. So anyway, so at the Lyric then, that's what happened. I was there for six years. I, Whilst there, I, I auditioned for and acted in one play. But uh, it kind of caused such a big backlash. I thought, you know what, life's too short. But also, I, it was a very demanding job. Mm. And, and the new Lyric is stunning. And, and it's there. And then, so I left the Lyric to actually primarily to do a major site-specific project on the old uh, Long Cash prison site, which is the notorious prison site just outside Belfast where the Ten Hunger Strikers died mm-hmm. and uh, where it had the internment camps and all that. And um, because way back in 2000, I did a massive site-specific project in an old courthouse in Belfast called Convictions with a company called Tinderbox. And I love the idea of creating a piece of theatre in a contested site where the, the bricks and the mortar reflects the past 
what we put into it reflects the future whilst the audience is the present and how do you do that how do you create something that is still true to the notion of being a creative provocation something that gives voice to those that don't have a voice but also something that helps you look at your environment differently and convictions was such a huge success it was so off its time we did it in 2000 and um Belfast was going through a lot of hassle at the time. The rest of the world thought we were, we'd find peace and mm. we were all hugging each other in the streets. That wasn't really what was happening. I think the legacy of conflict is much greater than the world ever imagines. Um, and anyway, so that's why I left the lyric because I wanted to do something in the Long Cash site. And then the job at Kibosh came up and they'd started doing site-specific work and they, their general manager at the time was a brilliant woman called Joe Egan who I'd worked with on another site-specific project in 1999 called the Wedding Community Play Project, an inspired project that took an audience around a city for a five-hour experience. And um, I thought, you know what, I'll go into Kibosh. And I interviewed and got it. Again, having no great desire to kind of go, this is what I'm going to do. And I'd studied directing the college as well as performance. I went to Dartington College of Arts. Uh, I'm so not a Dartington girl. I actually left after two years. I'm one of the few it didn't work for. But... Uh, um, I then started directing, and um, and that is in 2006. So I've been with Kibosh ever since, and they'll have to carry me out in a box, <laughs> <laughs> which they probably will. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a bit of an old roller coaster. I mean, I do the odd performance still, but mostly it would be like a wee bit of TV or film, you know. Okay. Um, I still, uh, you know, but I still love being in a rehearsal room. You know? mm. And there is one kibosh play that I stepped into mind about six years ago for us going to uh, South Africa because unfortunately the actress who was in it, her husband, became very, very, very sick. And I stepped into mind and I'm still minding it. I keep saying to her every time I see her, you do know you're eventually going to come back to this play. <laughs> so, yeah. I love that, minding it for you. It's such a beautiful way to look at it. It's not, it's, I'm just taking care of it for you till you're ready so it's um yourself and zoe did you say that yeah yeah Yeah. so how do you find running a company to women i mean we know what it's like with women (laughs) 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 Um, i think oddly the majority of theater companies in the north of ireland are run by women oh really wow Yeah. Oh, there you are. Oh, a bit of drums. Well, we'll a bit of drums. <laughs> oh, no, guys. I know. I wonder if do we should we move over there, or maybe they're going to pass. What do we they think? They always do this like we procession about this time, and we always forget to start a podcast and have to stop <laughs> and have a wee like, minute of. <laughs> well, we'll have a wee pause. So the drums have stopped, we think. Um, and we're going to go back to most companies in Ireland are run by women, which is, yeah. well, Northern Ireland, which is fascinating. Yeah. But actually, you have, you know, you have a lot of very strong female, you know, creatives in Ireland. You know, I mean, you've got Gary Hines running uh, Drew Theatre Company in Galway. Has been running from the beginning. And, like, it's now going, gosh, I'm going to get it wrong, but I would have thought it's about 35 years. Wow. Uh, Rough Magic in Dublin, Lynn Parker. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Uh, Joe Mangan, Performance Corporation. Um, let me think now the buildings is a different issue yeah you know um, I mean like when I was running the lyric I was the first artistic first female artistic director since the founder 
Wow. You know, which actually meant that every morning you would you were convinced you were going to get the big hand on the shoulder that goes, <laughs> We've just found you out, you haven't a clue. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but um I'm trying to think then you had Sharabang, you see we had great we had great women that went before us in the north. I mean Sharabang Theatre Company was founded by a group of five actresses um in um wonder when that would have been. Must have been nineteen eighty. Okay. You know, and the conflict was still like at its worst, you know. Yeah. And uh, and these amazing women founded this theatre company because they realised there were no decent parts for them. And within two years they returned their work to Russia. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean and and they all still work within the business and I work with a lot of them. And funny enough I was with them this weekend. And um, you know, they they showed us all it was possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and they all were big activists and big activists within the union. You know, I mean, Eleanor Methvin was chair of the Equity in the North for a long time, and once you hear her speak publicly, you know, dare you go against it? You know, <laughs> and then even the kind of weaken the feminist movement in Ireland's been very, very strong, and we have our own group in the North as well. And then you have Zoe Seaton runs a big telly theatre company up in Port Stewart. It's going thirty years. Uh, only only theatre company in the north coast of Ireland. Um, in a small town and she just churns the work out an wow. incredible woman who, who very much believes in breaking down barriers to access and has cre- as part of the whole creative shops campaign all that stuff um, and then you've got um, then you've got Anne McReynolds runs the Metropolitan Arts Centre which is um, an amazing uh, multi-purpose art space in Belfast City Centre that has two theatres and five galleries and uh, loads of rehearsal space. They also have an artist's hub as well. Then you have the ever-wonderful Emma Jordan, who runs Prime Cut Productions, who have been at Edinburgh for the last three years and are actually in Edinburgh this year with Hard To Be Soft as part of the main festival programme with Una Doherty. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Una Doherty, like, remember that name as a choreographer and a performer. I have never seen the like of her. She's, she's actually quite incredible. And then you've got um, telling Then you've got um, Trisha Downey, who runs a theatre company called Spanner in the Works, and that's basically what Trisha does: puts spanners right, in the works. works. And she tours. To yeah, no, she's brilliant. <laughs> she uh, she tours work into community centres, and that's work that looks at um, substance abuse. Um, looks at. I mean, her current piece is looking at. Rape Within Marriage, I think is her current one. Um, she's also looked at human trafficking. Um, she's a one-woman team. Uh, she's incredible. Amazing. Does a lot of work. Tours it as well, actually. She, she's taken work to Canada quite a few times. She's kind of building up her contacts over there. Um, and then you've got young practitioners coming through, like the likes of Anna Leckie with Three's Company, whose next piece is looking at uh, The North Is Next, which I'm sure you're aware of the whole... Um, campaign for for uh, allowing women to choose um as um, as thankfully now because of the way the government is going mm-hmm. that now the rest of the world hears what we deal with at home mm-hmm. um and um they they're doing that company are they doing that work they the, they're an amazing company because they create kind of site site specific installations like like they did another project called date show which was like 15 short pieces about dating in the one building. And when you arrived, you had to sign up to a particular menu. <laughs> and then off you went on that, you know. I mean, she's a re- really interesting young woman. Another great young practitioner coming through is a woman called Sarah Reed, who um, Sarah's most recent piece was about the impact of um, suicide on families. Okay. Because unfortunately, one of the, the legacies of conflict is we have lost more people to suicide 
than we lost through the course of the whole conflict. And, but again, you know, that's yeah. something that happens internationally. Yeah. Um, and it is, and I think one of the things that's amazing about the work that does come out of such a small place like the north of Ireland is work that is dealing with very sensitive social issues. Um, because, you know, we all grew up there. We're all kind of children of the conflict or the legacy of the conflict. And inevitably, as artists, that's what we want to comment on, you know. Mm-hmm. So how do I find it? Do you know what? Um, I sometimes become a bit immune to it. I think it was harder when I was running the lyric because I would spend my life really in rooms with men in suits. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that still happens mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but I I have a faith in my own voice. It's taken a while for it to get there. I, I um, like whenever I decide to do something, I always ask myself the same three questions. If I'm going to decide on a project, it is, is it the right time to do it? Why me? What is, what is it that I'm bringing to a particular narrative that nobody else can bring to it? And inevitably that's informed by the fact that I'm female. And inevitably it's informed by the fact that, you know, I grew up in Belfast and I was born in 1966 before the trouble started. And inevitably it's informed by the fact of the kind of context in which I find myself. Um, and that is my power as a practitioner. And it's, it's kind of being comfortable with that. And mm-hmm. that then helps you know what your limitations are. And then my third question always is then, who's a four? Yeah. You know, and, um, but the most difficult of those is why me? You know, yeah. what is it about that story that interests me and that I think that I can put it, or shine a different perspective on? Um, but yeah, you know, you also say the one of the initiatives that came out of the Wake and the Feminist thing in the North was one of our board members, um, Maggie Cronin, uh, decided to take on a piece of work as part of a doctorate where she would measure the gender statistics for all the projects produced in the North over the last... I think she said five years. Five years with the with the plan of it being ten. And she went into each of the independent companies, and they we all agreed we'd give her our figures. And the main producing theatre, like the lyric, did the same thing. And she has now mapped what roles they had, and consequently an idea then of pay levels, length of contract, and what the balance is. And what's really interesting is is that you know I would I would say you know myself and Zoe. Would, would call ourselves feminists. We are very, we're acutely aware of our gender balance within our work. But it is amazing what it throws up. Mm. You know, like it really is, particularly if a show keeps reviving. Mm-hmm. You know, like the police show I have here. Yes. All of a sudden, your kind of male statistics go through the roof. But also, I just think that, you know, because I remember for years, we had a huge debate at home about, is there a place for positive discrimination? Because there was a time when um, there were so few female playwrights. Mm. And we were all asking questions. Why aren't there female playwrights? Where are we going to get the female playwrights? How will we encourage them? What are the barriers to the becoming playwrights, etc.? And I remember the time those discussions about positive discrimination. And yet that seemed um, almost patronising in its own way, mm. you know. And so it is difficult to get into conversations about gender balance and at what what, what the hierarchy of roles is as regards to that. But I do think that sharing information with us so that we are aware of who and when we employ people, that it just, it just takes the blinkers off a wee bit, you know, and it also empowers you to do something about it. 
yeah. instead of somebody else down wagging a finger, you know. And I think that that level of um, that that changes the tone of activism then, you know, because because you kind of become a keeper of your own destiny, you know. Um, but anyway, that's my thought at the moment. Okay, <laughs> I know. I'm like. Just, I could listen to you all day. Um, can you tell the listeners about your project that you just did at the weekend there? Oh, which yeah. Which was your 12 oh. females. <laughs> Not that we don't love you men. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And sure, listen, I've got three gorgeous men with me in Edinburgh. Wouldn't yeah. have them any other way. Just keep checking on them. Um, <laughs> but uh, With their moustaches. With, with their moustaches. At least I know they won't score when they're here because they're very <laughs> unfortunate looking. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I know. Like I know. It. Like to all you moustache wearers out there, I don't know. I just don't get it. No, I'm. Yeah. No. no. I mean, I kind of get the beard thing a wee bit. You know. I mean, I can more on board with a beard than a moustache. Yeah, but, but yeah. a moustache. You know, particularly if it's a fully forged moustache, <laughs> it kind of looks like a dead beaver. You know? <laughs> See, I quite like it. You quite like it. Yeah, I do. There's something weird about it. I think it's the confidence to wear such a statement piece. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason, like, right, but you know, the really sad it. thing is, we we have done the show like you know for like 225 like police officers, <laughs> and then you know they will say things like, uh, "Oh, but the moustaches are unusual." And you look around the room and you want to go, "And you have one, and you have one, and you have one," and they're walking around the big bad world proud of their moustaches. Um, anyway, <laughs> the uh, piece I did at the weekend. It's a really interesting social experiment because uh, Bram Friel's first ever play was a play called The Enemy Within. And it is about the monk Columba. And uh, Columba who set up his own monastery on the island of Iona. Okay, And uh, it's a really interesting piece because the play itself is about him within this closed order and how he deals with his kind of family of monks as its leader. And then the outside influence so family members keep coming to him and asking him to lead their army you know so that they have a religious at the head of their army and so he keeps being taken away from the from the monastery and he grapples with that idea of his duty to god and his soul and his destiny as opposed to his relationship with his bloodline and his dna and the land and 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 the people of ireland all this stuff right so it, you know it's an interesting piece very rarely staged because it's a cast of ten, and um, I'm an art, I'm an associate artist with a festival called Arts Over Borders, which looks at um, what is considered to be uh, literary greats of the border area. So, for example, that's kind of Freel up around Donegal, Derry, bringing you down to kind of Heaney, round about Balahi, then bringing you on down to uh, Oscar Wilde um, and Beckett, who both went to school in Enniskillen. Apologies, they are all male. I'm trying to have major conversations about the fact they're all male and I'm dealing with the artistic director on that because we do need to find the female voice. That's why I keep pushing for women within it. But it is, you know, I mean, it's an issue. Yeah. So, four years ago, they asked me would I do The Enemy Within and would I get 10 guys to do it? No problem. I said, but we need to dress them as monks, right? And I want to do it in a couple of churches, right? So we opened it in Glen Colum Kill Church, which is in the Gaeltacht of um, Donegal, Irish-speaking area beautiful wee church and there is something incredible about when people sit in a spiritual space and they watch a piece of theatre because they treat it both as live theatre but also as a radio play and there's a real sense of gravitas given to it anyway it worked beautifully really did it was a gorgeous piece and we did it as a staged reading after that then they kept asking me to do it again right and we had such crack 
because I'm all, I'm obviously with the guys for for like uh, oh, it's really only about five days. Like we rehearse for two and then we go off and tour around a few churches. Anyway, so we did it for two years running each summer, right? And uh, and then this year for Arts Over Borders, they said to me, "Listen, you know, we'd love you to revive and like the enemy within." I do the other things as well. I don't <laughs> just do the enemy within, but this was what I was asked to do. <laughs> anyway, so so they said to me, "Listen, would you come back now?" And I said, "You know what?" I'll do it if you let me do all female, right? To which then, Bran Friel's estate, and rightly so, is very, very strict. And Bran was always known as being very specific. Like, it, you, like you know, you don't leave out a comma or a full yeah. stop or anything, you know. And, like, I I performed in Dancing at Lunasa. You know, I know what he was like. When he sits in the front row and you're looking at him, you're going, don't leave out the semicolon. <laughs> um, so, anyway, so... But but thankfully, the thankfully the Friel family had heard great things about the other one. And also, unfortunately, Brian was dying whenever we did it that first year. But we took loads of photographs and we sent him our audience comments and stuff. And his wife, Anne, wrote me a beautiful letter to say we read everything to Brian before he died. And Brian died two weeks later and all that. And, you know, it was terribly sad, but it was such a great honour to have done it. But anyway, so I wrote this whole thing. Like, I was convent educated. Um, I went to a convent school for both my secondary, my primary and my nursery. I know. Wow, do you know what? (laughs) And you wonder why I do what I do. (laughs) I think it should be a rebellious streak in there somewhere. Um, I know. It's it's the ritual I love. Um, So uh, anyway, so Anne Freel agreed because I said, look, you know, having having been educated in that kind of convent environment, that sense of community, the hierarchy of nuns, and and um, also the idea of the pull of family. On women, and I thought it'd be really let's yeah. do it all women, and so we did. So um, we rehearsed it last week, and uh, we we did it in a wee church in Oma, which is where uh, Bran was born, and then we brought it up to two churches in Derry, and we did it uh, on the north and the south of the river in Derry, in the waterside and the bogside, and um, and on Sunday we did a performance dedicated to Lyra McKee. Lyra McKee was the journalist, the young woman, terrible sad was was uh, murdered at at, um, at a rant in Derry there, gosh, about six months ago. And uh, an incredible activist as regards human rights. And so we felt, wouldn't it be fitting for the ten women to do it? So, yeah, so they were in their nuns' habits and all this stuff. But it was very funny because um, I had kind of convinced the cast they actually weren't uh, going to perform it at all, that I had actually got a grant to do a social experiment uh, just to see, is it harder to corral ten women rather than ten men? Um, and also the obsession with each of the men ringing me privately going, so who's playing me? <laughs> and, and, also, <laughs> and also the women going, were we better than them? All vaguely doing it as a joke, yeah. like, you know. So then when, Brand, when, when Brand's widow Anne came to see the show on, on Friday... Uh, on, on Saturday morning actually she was incredibly moved she got really upset by it. and she was saying that, that she somehow connected with it more she felt the she felt the moral tug and the female spirit mm. was even stronger and that the responsibility to family and the, the kind of emotional trauma of that so anyway so yeah it happened and uh, but it is very funny actually you know just just having that kind of type of group of people but also the minute you put them in habits you know I mean it's the same as the boys like the minute the boys went into their monk outfits they all became a bit weird 
you know, like they all forgot how to walk, you know, <laughs> or like cross their legs or sit. They all just became really strange, you know. And then, and then those that get intimidated about being on an altar, you know. Uh. You know, that kind of wee bit of that wee bit of religious education yeah. they had when they were kids all comes to the fore. Or anybody that was an altar boy keeps genuflecting even though there's no religion. <laughs> and like the girls were the same. Like the minute they all put their wimples on. Yeah. They all just became slightly freaked. Anyway, so yeah, so that's so that's what I did at the weekend. And then so but but it's all part of like the next project we're doing is we've started working on a project that looks at gender violence within conflict and we're working with them. Um, some Colombian academics and the University of Ulster to look at the representation of uh, working with a brilliant academic called Lisa Fitzpatrick who lectures on and her area of study is the representation of rape on stage rape and physical violence on stage and um, she has been researching for years now looking at um, gender violence within conflict and then um, I spoke at a conference with a brilliant Colombian academic who uh, her area of expertise is women as a weapon of war and uh, so we've just commissioned uh, uh, a brilliant um, I keep saying everyone's brilliant but they are brilliant um, uh, Vittoria Gafola, uh, Belfast playwright who is going to write a piece then based on interviews we do with uh, women from the north and their experiences of um, sexual violence physical violence, mental violence uh, both during and post-conflict so yeah, another kibosh comedy hmm. wow I'm just absolutely I incredible. Um, I'm really interested what you said about um, the pool with the female and the family, because uh-huh. I'm always I always wonder is it stronger with females than it is with men, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful to men, because I know there are lots of men that are really family orientated and everything, but I feel like as a female, there's definitely something in us. I don't know if it's from how we're brought up or 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 just is it just in us that is the family that link to family is always like I mean, I'm in my thirties and I always make sure that I can go and take my grand shopping to help my mum because she's an only child. And I wonder But that's because you actually just want money out of your granny's will. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. She was actually being really sentimental. I just thought I'd cut through it. No, Sorry, Alien. No, it's <laughs> right. I know, because I'm like, no, I actually... <laughs> she really, really defended herself there. I'm like, oh, no, I actually love spending time with my granddad. Yeah, um, I think she does protest too much. Uh, no, just, but it is that thing of like, yeah. I always, I wonder if I had a brother, because I've got a sister and she's younger, she's got kids, and I don't. So mm-hmm. I do have a little bit extra time. So yeah. it's like, it's easier for me to be and my mum's an only child and I always wondered if I had a brother would they be as like 50-50 with you yeah uh uh-huh or would it be as open with her time and then I look at my husband and he really was with his mum Um, but then I look at other families and I kind of go it kind of always tends to get left to the door and I just I find that really fascinating that is it something that's just in us like that That maternal need to care Mm. whether you're a maternal person or not and whether you have kids or not is it is that just there in us, or is it yeah. from such a young age that we we don't even? I mean, I'm from a family of like three girls, and uh, and like I have no children, and um, and my youngest sister's got three, you know, and and my granny lived with us all our lives as well, you know. Um, it's interesting. Like my only kind of the thing that popped into my head when we started talking about that was there's a book called Shoot the Women First, okay, and it is based on a series of interviews with. Uh, 
some people use different terms, but it could be female freedom fighters, female terrorists, female combatants, whatever you want to call them. And it goes from the likes of Rosa Luxemburg to Maria de Farrell to the bandit queen. Now, as a book, it's a bit dated now, but I remember when I first read it, I was fascinated by it because I was doing work in prisons. I was doing, uh, I was working for the Prison Arts Network. And, uh, and the Prison Arts Network is a European-wide network that supports people that do creativity within prisons. And, uh, and we had a group at home called the Prison Arts Foundation that um, I was heavily involved in. And um, one of the things that was talked about a lot within that network was the difference in dealing with female and male combatants. And that it is believed... Now, this is a hell of a generalisation, but it is believed that it is easier to work with male combatants to find some sort of a reconciliation with their past, some sort of a aspiration for the future. And what you'll find with female combatants is they are incredibly single-minded. So, so the idea of necessarily rel- relinquishing their connection with what they did is not going to happen. They made a decision on that moment to do something because they believed it was the right thing to do. And often what you'll find it is lashing out against a partner and killing them, lashing out against another because they have insulted your family, they have done something to your child, and it is a violent reaction that leads to them being imprisoned because of something they absolutely believed in. And I always think that that is a really interesting way of mm-hmm. looking at what is it about the makeup of an individual and is that gender-based yeah. or not, as the case may be. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think, you know, like it's very... There are a lot of women who who don't have that kind of maternal connection or that mm-hmm. link, you know. And I think, but I think a lot of it is hormonal. Like, I wonder how much of it we've any control over. I mean, I would say, you know, it's really worth going to see if you, if you get a chance. And I, a big shout out, is like at the Edinburgh Fringe, and it will go into London and it will travel, is Gina Moxley's piece, uh, The Patient Gloria, <laughs> which is a co production between the Traverse and the Abbey. I mean, Gina has done the most incredible work with that piece. And actually, it's just really interesting because it totally deals with that idea of the maternal instinct and whether it does actually exist. Mm. And it is based on a series of interviews uh, that are kind of therapy sessions that happen that abs- that address that question about whether whether we are just so ha- you know whether we are just maternal you know. I mean, I did a piece in Belfast called Belfast by Moonlight to mark the two hundredth anniversary of Belfast because I felt like somebody needed to do something and we did it in an old church where the city was founded called St George's Church and I decided that we would c- commission Carlo Gebler and we created a piece that involved six female monologues that were all women from different generations of the foundation of Belfast that had a connection with the church now they were all fictional and we had a female choir so we created this oratorio and each of them came and they gave their homage to Belfast on and it was called Belfast by Moonlight because it was the night of the full moon and a big full moon came in through the big stained glass at the end of the church. And we commissioned all these songs about the rivers of Belfast, the mountains of Belfast, the bricks, the mortar and all that. And Belfast is a very industrial city, you know. But I always had this gras, this feeling that Belfast was a maternal city. 
for various reasons. One is it's built on rivers, and for some reason, I think rivers are female. And also, it's the water. Isn't it really weird? Yeah. And also, I also felt as well that, you know, because of the legacy of the conflict, I mean, for 40 years, you had, you know, more than 50% of our population, sorry, 50% of our male population, like maybe up as, like it's reckoned at one point there were 73% of the male population were in prison. So, like, you actually have a city and a, you know, and a people mm-hmm. being run by women. Yeah. And that's one of the issues that whenever the early release program started and the whole kind of Good Friday Agreement and all the men come back into the community, that kind of levels of domestic violence rose, depression rose, mm. you know, uh, prescription drug use, drug use, it's very hard to say, rose. And, um, but we had a panel, that, and the panel was, is Belfast a matriarchal or patriarchal city? Flip's sake, he'd have thought I'd thrown a grenade into the main street. <laughs> um, it was only a thought. <laughs> it's on rivers. <laughs> it's yes, like we may be shipbuilding, rope making and all that stuff, but it just always felt to me there was a kind of a feminine yeah. quality within this strong Victorian, you know, bricks and mortar grey city, you know. But anyway. Sorry, I digress. No, I think no, I think there's something about that though, because I think a lot of kind of industrial cities that are obviously really where the river or the sea comes to, there's a real matriarchal sense. Glasgow's got it, Dundee's yeah. got yeah. it, yeah. Um, and it's you know they're known yeah. for their industry or their yeah. fishing or whatever, but actually the women of that city are what mm-hmm. holds it together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can totally. I totally go with yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's our theory. That's our theory. You're sticking with it. <laughs> Woe betide you who disagree. Exactly. Um, you talked about the feminist um, theatre movement in um, Belfast. Can you just name the? Is it a company organisation that it is that you've got there? It's a movement called Waking the Feminist. Uh, sorry, Waking the Feminists. Uh, as the wonderful Eleanor Methvin, who I mentioned earlier on, said that she never needed Woken. She's been awake for a very long time. It's just nobody was listening. <laughs> Everybody else was asleep. Everybody else was asleep. You know, and she's absolutely right. Uh, Waking the Feminists in the south of Ireland uh, was uh, kind of initiated by an amazing woman called Leanne Bell. Uh, like you'll find her on Twitter and stuff. She like she's very active, and she's a lighting designer by trade. Does a lot of work with Pan Pan Theatre Company, and uh, it came about because. Um, there was a season announced at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin and um, they tallied up the number of men and the number of women and there were no female directors in that whole season and there was no uh, new female playwrights and designers and and so there was a bit of an outcry, understandably. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can't have your your uh, main producing theatre, your national theatre, ignoring more than 50% of the population. Yep. Um, and so uh, that's then what happened. And this movement just started. And um, and they did a big open day in the Abbey Theatre. The Abbey then said, OK, come in, let people speak. And they had, I think, now I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but you can watch it on YouTube, uh, the whole film of the whole day. And they had, uh, I think it was something like 35 different women were all given a two-minute slot just to give their case. So they introduced themselves and they kind of said... and. And actually, and actually, one of the uh, like a woman who's performing in Edinburgh this year, Janet Moran, she came on complete with baby and everything, said, "Look, this is me," you know. Uh, but the speeches were incredible and very honest about different times, different, you know, kind of roles within the arts industry, uh, from stage management to designers to writers to directors to actors to choreographers yeah. to everything else in between. And uh, it really paint 
painted an incredible picture of of the of the oppression that was existing within kind of gender differences within the arts. Despite the fact, as I said earlier, that quite a lot of the companies have been run by women. Mm. And so out of that then, they developed a best practice policy. They also monitored uh, all the main arts organisations. They went through those funded by the Arts Council and they um, tallied them all up and they've presented reports and they have basically mobilised producers and funders to go, this is not good enough. Yeah. You know, and raised awareness. And so that is an organisation then. What happened was in the North, we realised our case is slightly different. Uh, because inevitably, inevitably the legacy of conflict is different. Also, our funding system is very, very poor in comparison. And so we felt we needed to find our own, and um, that's what happened. And so we founded Waking the Feminists NI. Um, I'm on the committee along with eight others. Um, I mean, we're not particularly... We don't meet a lot, but as an organisation, it exists. And if something exists, then you raise awareness and you empower people to take matters into their own hands and to create a better society for artists. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there, they have a, sorry, we have a MAM group as well, which is for uh, women who have children who work within the arts, how we look at crash facilities, how we look at how you get back into work, how we look at the difficulties of when you find out you're pregnant, when you do have your baby, how all that works and they're they're great That's great subcommittee. Um we also we have worked really hard to get um the kind of underrepresented art forms in or sorry not art forms skill sets as in you know more stage management mm. in, more designers in. Um yeah like it's been and also the other massive thing that we did was we we worked on creating safe spaces. Yeah. Um obviously coming out of the whole Me Too campaign. Yeah. Um, and that was a real eye-opener. Um, I kind of sat on that for a bit and kind of hosted a few sessions, and um, I think that the sexual violence that is suffered by an awful lot of practitioners is its frightening, mm-hmm. and we know we're only scratching the surface of it, um, and, that's, and that uh, is coming from agents and directors and producers, and... Uh, and I think we all know what's there. We're just terrified of opening the door and realizing it's the there. You know, books. oh, flip's sake, it's yeah. terrible. You know, and I do think that, you know, and I, you know, and I'm not speaking out of turn because I've said it to them myself. I do think equity needs to take more of a lead. I think there needs to be stricter guidelines as regards um, agents. I think drama schools need to be encouraging people to be part of the union. I think that um, we need to be telling young practitioners what their rights are, and that they don't have to. Uh, suffer oppression with an idea of like getting a better job you know um, because because the good people always come to the surface um, and um, yeah I think it's a difficult enough industry without us all talking to each other you know um, yeah. and I think the way funding's going and the way um, the kind of rise of right wing governments it's mm-hmm. going to get harder and harder yeah. to be a creative that, that actually can have any impact um, and I just think we need to create better support networks, you know. But that's basically what Wicked the Feminists is. Um, yeah, and, you know, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us, like, online, all that stuff, you know. And I would encourage any group of practitioners anywhere just to 
you know, mobilise under that banner because I think that we need to have, you know, possibilities whereby we can just get together and talk and kind of share knowledge. I mean, I think, you know, knowledge is a great way of empowering people. Um, And there's a a brilliant activist at home. Unfortunately, she died there not so long ago, a woman called Inez McCormick. And Inez McCormick formed an organisation called PPR. PPR is the Performance and Practice of Rights. And Inez believed that um, it is not about highlighting oppression or fighting it yourself. It is about giving those who are being oppressed the tools to fight their own battles. And I always think that that's a really good objective. And uh, Ina said, whenever you're sitting at a group and you're looking around the table, she says, you don't pat yourself on your back for the people that are there. You say, who's not at the table? Yeah. You know, and I think that's a massive thing. And I think, um, you know, one of the things as well within Kibosh that we've started doing more and more work within is looking at LGBT. LGBTQ plus rights and um, we've started doing projects within that area and again it was a subject I thought I knew I thought I knew the narratives that were existing and um, it's amazing some of the very vocal very active practitioners that are coming through um, through that programme that we run Sightlines um, so yeah I think there's a lot of work still to be done but we're getting there Great, I mean we have been asking yeah, everybody like... at the end of the podcast like what persistent and nasty means to them but I kind of feel like you've covered it in so many ways like the reason we kind of um, called herself persistent and nasty was the phrase you know yet she persisted and then when Trump called Hillary a nasty woman for daring to you know give him actual facts we were like no we're reclaiming that word like bossy you know bitch all of that coven that's our other one that we're taking back (laughs) taking it back so yeah I mean if there's anything that you like when you hear that phrase what does it mean for you persistent and nasty Mm. I kind of feel it's just you Paula (laughs) (laughs) just like you've just done it it. I think I'm actually not bad at the persistent I'm just not quite good enough at the nasty but I think the nasty (laughs) is just like for me the nasty because I don't think like I think it's that thing where people go oh nasty I don't want to be nasty I'm definitely not a nasty person but I am strong yeah yeah, and I'm not going to take your shit anymore Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's funny I get I get bored much easier than I used to I kind of listen to people sometimes and I'm like, do you hear yourself? It's yeah. actually what goes through my head, you know. But it's funny you're saying about kind of reclaiming language. One of the lines that always kind of sticks in my head is Frank McGuinness, brilliant playwright from Donegal, who wrote Factory Girls and wrote yeah. uh, Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards yeah. the Somme and various other pieces. And I work with him a few times and never have a fondness for the man and God, he loves women. <laughs> and, um, and Frank's line in um, Someone to Watch Over Me oh. is, uh, we took their language and we bettered them at it. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think we should finish there, but we should give um, all the details of the show. So if you can just say where it's on, what time it's on at, um, for and title and all that and then that's us okay Uh, Green and Blue it's on in uh, Upper Church which is the Bruford space at Summerhall 7 o'clock every night until Sunday the 25th Uh, tickets are only a tenner you can get them online and um, check out Kibosh follow us on Twitter at Kibosh Theatre or www.kibosh.net and if you don't get to see us this time we will be back yes Paula, thank, thank you so you. much. That totally, was just That's brilliant. Fountain of wisdom. Yeah. Power. Loved it. Loved it. We need to do our little. Yeah. yeah. So until next time, guys. <laughs> stay nasty. <laughs>